For our listeners, have you taken Holly's class? If so, we would love to hear about your biggest takeaways and we'll share it with her. Please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app and you can download this at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by senior lecturer, Holly Schrote of the Haas School of Business. She teaches a popular class, Negotiations on Campus, which I just recently took, and, uh, and I loved. <laughs> it, was, it was intense. I took it over the summer. Um, I, I don't know even how you kept up with the energy, Holly. It was, it was a very intense week. Well, when you love teaching something like negotiations, I get excited about it. So it just energizes me. I think our listeners would like to hear your, your background, your origin story. You know, Holly, where you're from, um, basically how you progress into the field of uh, negotiations. So I was born and raised in the Bay Area. And my dad was a professor at UC Berkeley in plant pathology. Totally different topic. <laughs> I actually hated... Berkeley. The reason why is that my mom also worked on campus at the time. And well, actually, let me go back. Uh, She stopped working, but we'd often have to just wait on the lawns for my dad to be finished working. Mm -hmm. And she would often be doing something else. And so we just had to stay there and entertain ourselves for hours. Mm. And this is a time, this is in the 70s, and there was a lot going on on campus. It was actually <laughs> a pretty scary place to be. And I was terrified of hippies back then. <laughs> they, they scared me. And uh, so I didn't like Berkeley. And when it was came, came time for me to decide where to go to college, my dad said, you can go to any UC you like, because he's a strong believer in UC, as I am. And yeah. I said, well, I'm not going to Berkeley And uh, so without any rhyme or reason or even research, I just said, I want to go to UC Santa Barbara. I want to live close to the beach. Mm -hmm. Not a very informed decision. (laughs) So I went down there and I decided that I wanted to be a psychology major. And the reason for this is I wanted to know why people were mean to each other. Mm. I wanted to know that since second grade. And so I wanted to study that a little bit more. Now, luckily, uh, the program in psychology down there was actually the strongest program in social psychology, the study of social interaction. I didn't know that was a name for what I wanted to study at the time, but I had really amazing professors there. And the more classes I took, the more I could narrow down what I actually wanted to study. And that was something called social cognition, the study of how we think about social interaction. Oh, wow. And it was a very rigorous program in terms of science. Otherwise, my dad would not have been happy being a scientist, uh, which I appreciated. Had to take a lot of lab classes. And that has served me well because I can do a lot of statistics and big data. Hmm. And at the time, I didn't appreciate that. I thought every psychology program was like that. But that was really unique to Santa Barbara. So I've worked a lot of jobs since uh, high school. And I was junior of the year and I was deciding, well, what do I want to do? And I was looking at my dad who seemed to have some time to coach my sports teams. And I thought, 
hmm, being a professor might be okay. I like having time to work when I want to work. Yeah. Because I am a workaholic, but I like to work my own hours. So right. I decided I'll give this professor thing a try and I'll just go ask a professor whether I can do research for him or her. And I did that and I was hired on. And I was so gung-ho about it that the professor hired me to be a research assistant. And that was taking the place of a regular graduate student. And this is in the early, early 80s. And I was getting paid $15 an hour. That was huge back then. (laughs) So I thought, wow, this is fantastic. So I was offered a scholarship to stay there uh, and continue my graduate studies. So I took it. And the story doesn't go as nicely from there. (laughs) And uh, I had to make a big decision in my life because one of the professors that I was working with, the one that was actually funding me, wanted me to create data to support uh, a research theory that was important to her. Hmm. In other words, cheat on the experiment to get it published. Mm. I just couldn't do that because I'd have to... I'm, I always say I'm the daughter of a scientist. I have to do these things right and well. I could not live with myself. And it was very hard because I knew that I'd have to leave the school. Right. And so I did look into the rules because I've always been a good researcher in that way. And it said if I pass my board exams, and uh, then I could just move schools and finish my dissertation elsewhere. Hmm. So I knew that they wanted me out because it was a very contentious thing. And I studied so hard. I don't even remember that year, but I remember all the content. So there was no way they couldn't pass me. That actually has served me well because when I teach in class, I never have to use notes. I have all of this social psychology stuffed into my brain. Hmm. So I passed and I ended up going to Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern. And that's kind of odd going from a psychology school to now a business school. Right. And that came about because we had a visitor one day, his name is Max Bazerman, and I read his research. I really liked it. He did negotiation decision-making. And uh, I was the only one that volunteered to go to lunch with him. And I'm actually a shy introvert, but I really wanted to meet him because I really admired him. And just out of sheer desperation, I said, oh, I really like your work. Is there any way I can come work with you? Shockingly, he said yes. And he got me some money. That's how I ended up being over there. I learned so much from him. Uh, He's an amazing man. He's written great negotiation books, such as Negotiation Genius, Negotiating Rationally. Uh, So he's been a phenomenal mentor. So to finish up the story, so after I learned so much there, I also met another amazing woman, woman, Jean Brett, who's now my uh, partner in a nonprofit uh, business disseminating teaching materials. I decided that being from California, I needed to get back to California because Mm. I didn't know there were actual seasons (laughs) elsewhere. It was nine months of winter in Chicago. That was hard. I loved the people there. I loved the school. I'm an outdoorsy person. I have to be outside every day. So I came back to the Bay Area and I knocked on the doors of Berkeley. I Uh first went to psychology because there was a man named Tom Tyler there who does amazing work in procedural justice, which is actually my area of study, the fairness of process. And I asked whether I could work for him. And he said, yes, I'd love to have you here, but I don't have any money to pay you. But they need someone to teach negotiations in the business school. And I heard you're a student of Max. Uh, So I can uh, uh, 
call over there and uh, see if uh, that's still open. And that's right. how I ended up 28 years ago. Wow. I never left. That's amazing. <laughs> so it's kind of a weird story. I talk to my undergraduates a lot in class because they'll face some of these ethical dilemmas and not be afraid to do the right thing. Things can turn out a lot better for you. And also not to be afraid to ask. The worst someone can say is no. The best they can say is yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I definitely can connect with you on two points. Um, first point, my parents are both professors. They, um, that's why we moved to the U.S., my, my dad came to, to do his P, master's and PhD in reading language arts. So it's very um, ironic that we have these Chinese immigrants that teach teachers how to teach uh, English pretty much <laughs> in my family. But, uh, and then the second point is I'm from Michigan. So I, I know my wife's from Chicago. So I definitely know the, know the, uh, the weather. <laughs> and that's why I moved to Los Angeles. And that's also why, and this is no offense to the Bay Area, why uh, compared to Southern California, I spent one summer there. I mean, I've been at school for the past two years, but I spent the last summer there um, during my internship in the city. And I just, I was just wondering why it was just 60 degrees like all summer. And, and, um, and I think that was a nail in the coffin. To say well, you have I, to move out to the East Bay where I live. It's 100 degrees here and then it can be 50 in the city. Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. <laughs> you know, to segue into my next question, you've been a professor here for, you've been a faculty here for 28 years. What is the difference between faculty and professor? Well, if you're a professor, you are hired on the tenure track. And so you are evaluated mostly on your research. I see. Less so on your teaching. As a lecturer, you are hired solely to teach courses. Although so I my... still did research because I was thinking I'd go get a tenure track position. Right. But I did some soul searching and realized that although I like research, the kind of research I'd have to do to get a tenure track position was not what I wanted to do. And that's usually staying in a particular area and just doing the same thing over and over with little variations where I like to do completely different things. So I'll do procedural <laughs> justice. I'll look at language. I'll do Gen Z's. That's just how I am. But you're not rewarded for that. I guess who dictates the research? So you have to build up a catalog in your particular area of expertise. And that's, that's just how it goes. Oh, I and see. Okay. Uh, you have to be published in peer-reviewed journals. And uh, so like... you have to spend a lot of time doing uh, research. And as I said, although I liked it, uh, I just wasn't getting results enough that would be published. And so I decided to really focus on what do I like to do? One is I really like to teach. Yeah. And two, I really like to write negotiation exercises. And that came about because in order to stay at Berkeley as a lecturer, you have to get good ratings, but the, sometimes the materials are not there for you. Mm. And I noticed that the negotiation materials that were on the market, a lot of students couldn't relate to. They were not realistic because part of being a lecturer, I needed to go out and find another job. And so I started consulting and working with companies on their real life negotiation issues. So I started writing those up as negotiation exercises and I really wow. enjoyed it. Students responded well because they were more realistic. So I uh, really put a lot of effort into that. And that's what led to this partnership with the nonprofit to uh, publish those, my mentors and other people who want to get their 
materials out to others. Hmm. You know, over the past three decades, how have you seen the field of negotiations change? Huge change from the 80s. And that was with the advent of the internet Hmm. and the more widespread use of the internet. Because before then, you could get away with bad behavior. And so gambits were regularly featured in textbooks and other books. Now, with the internet, you can check on people's behavior. Right. And so it made people kinder and friendlier. So now, so much focus is on how to build good relationships, how to build trust, because that's where you really get value in being able to share information and use that in a way to benefit both sides. So there's a huge emphasis on what we call integrative negotiations, where you see each other as partners rather than combatants. Wow. That's actually a little counterintuitive to what I would would have thought, that the internet made people meaner. (laughs) I I know. (laughs) But in negotiations, different worlds with LinkedIn and that we can find someone who knows someone. So you have to make sure that uh, the people you work with say good things about you. That's very true. There's more transparency. Yes. Wow. And I, I guess to that point, you know, what what makes a good negotiation or what makes a good negotiator? I know that's a pretty loaded question, but do you have any kind of, you know, tips? I do. So first, let me start with what makes a good negotiation that both sides walk away feeling satisfied. Now, I've collected data for the past seven years in my executive ed class, my MBA class, undergraduate classes of why someone is evaluated as the top negotiator in the class. And you experience that with the peer feedback. So I always look at that and it comes down to three things. The first is a good negotiator not only looks after their own interests, they look after the other party's interests. Really important because again, you wanna make sure both sides walk away satisfied. Mm-hmm. You can't just look after the other side's interests and neglect your own or just look at your own and hope the other side gets by because that leads to lopsided deals. Right. The second is the good negotiators always had the comments that they listened well to the other side, made the other side feel their ideas were considered. They acknowledged mm. what the other side said. And so that was really important for people feeling valued and continuing the conversation and being willing to share information and information is power in the negotiation. The third is they're flexible on how they get their value. They're not fixated on just one item and they're willing to log roll or make trade-offs. So I can give you this if you give me this in return. So those three things every single semester come out on top. There's, I, I will add one more, which was for me really important that I, this is my biggest takeaway from your class among many things was, was a preparation portion of it. Yes. Is, yeah. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yes. I, I should have addressed that right away because preparation is the most important thing to being a good negotiator. I was looking more at the, the interpersonal part of the negotiation, but hands down preparation is key. And that's knowing what you're aiming for, which we call the aspiration point, knowing your walkaway point, which we call the resistance point. Some people call it reservation point or reservation price. Your BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement, or in other words, what you get when you walk away. Uh, that's a source of power. Understanding and prioritizing your items and what's important to the other side. The biggest mistake people make in preparation is they don't take the other side's perspective. Mm. 
To be a good negotiator, you have to do that. What are their constraints, their wants, their needs? What happens if the deal doesn't occur for them? I think that's, that's exactly what I took away, was it was so easy for me to fill out my side of the equation. But because when, when you have, um, you know, we had these exercises where we had to do the uh, pre-negotiation, what did the you call prep it? prep sheet? The prep sheet, yeah, the, the pre-negotiation prep sheets. And we were required to fill out both sides. And at first I was, you know, I, I could see the importance of it, but until I actually did it and went through, you know, every single row of filling out their reservation, you know, price, their resistance point, right? Their aspiration price, all these things, did I start really thinking about the other side uh, and, and, and even being more open-minded? I think that's, that's, that was the other thing. And I think this class helped me realize that negotiation for me, at least where I was failing and where I'm learning to practice uh, more and more every day, because negotiation is a practice, right? Is that it helped me open my mind more to be aware of the other side. But I'm really curious, what is the community consensus of Chris Voss uh, and, and his book? This is my personal commentary on it, is I love the first three chapters because it addressed those interpersonal aspects of negotiations, which many don't do, especially the building of a trusting relationship and how they had to use these social psychological techniques in order to do that. And although I didn't label them social psychology techniques. And so that was really important. I like that. But then when he got talking about some more technical things, they just weren't relevant to business Hmm. negotiations. And it started to get into more distributive gambit type tactics. Right. The salary negotiation chapter, what does a hostage negotiator know about salary negotiations? <laughs> it really didn't belong in the book. And um, I advise not taking that um, information. And the beginning of the book, I was actually really dubious because he was bragging what a great negotiator what he was. And yeah. negotiators are always humble. If you brag, you get yourself into trouble because then uh, people think, oh, you took advantage of me. They're not willing to share information because they, they think that um, right. they're going to win and that means they will lose. That's very true. And that's really the, and you're absolutely right. And because when I was reading the book, that's the feeling I was getting. But then there was one comment that he made that really stuck with me, which was that he thinks one of the, the best negotiators is Oprah Winfrey because she is, she practices all those skills of like tactile empathy, right? Uh, active listening, mirroring, things things that help uh, her guests open up very personally in front of millions of people, right? Yeah, it's that re those relationship building techniques are very useful. And that was the a valuable part of his book. And after I took your class, I really thought about it because, I mean, even his book, that the, the, there's like a little subheading. It's, it's just so deceptive. It makes negotiation sound like a dirty word, right? Former FBI hostage negotiator, field test tools to talk anyone into or out of just about anything. Like, that just yeah, runs me the wrong that's way. That's not how I see negotiations. My definition is sharing information in order to problem solve, to reach mutually satisfying agreements. I'm not here to talk you into anything, but right. I'm here to help you maybe think a different way, 
and come to the conclusion yourself that this direction may or may not be best for you. And that's where, you know, I think I came away with the same feeling with certain chapters of his, which, um, which your class really focused on, which were the aspects of really understanding the other side. And that's where going back to us talking about being open-minded, I started realizing that, because um, I guess the question in my head was, would I want someone to use these tactics or these, um, they're not tricks, but these tactics on me, right? How would I feel if the, uh, the other side also took your class, basically? Because that's how I was thinking about this when I was taking your class. Like the other side is getting this, the same advice, the same information. How do I feel about them using these techniques on me? And as I thought about it further, exactly what you're saying, if what you're trying to do is listen to the other side and really understand and ask good questions, then I absolutely want people to, to use these techniques on me because I want to be heard. Everybody wants to be heard, right? And, and that's kind of what I was slowly discovering as I was applying some of these techniques to my daily negotiations with my wife, with my friends, was that it forced me to just shut up and listen. <laughs> That's why I, I tell people that the person you want to negotiate with is someone who's had training. And that's why I go in the companies and I train the different departments so they can interact more effectively with each other. It saves time, energy, and money at the end of the day. The person you don't want to negotiate with is someone who treats it like a used car because mm. they don't uh, understand the value of the relationship and trying to work together with that. That's, that's so true. I mean, I, Holly, I, I have so many examples. I, I just from, uh, aside from personal family negotiations, which I just, I feel like we've taken our family communication to like another level, um, not just with my, my wife, but with my parents as well. Um, and I've taken a step further where I, I told myself, I want to dedicate at least six months to really practicing the techniques that you've taught uh, very actively. Um, and one of my buddies heard that and he was like, hey, do you want to do mock negotiations every week? Basically, we, we will bring in our uh, some example that we're trying to, to negotiate. I'll give you a very personal example. Uh, my dad, right? He is being stubborn and resistant about something, about going to the dentist because, um, you know, his tooth hurts or something. Initially, before taking your class, I would have thought this wasn't a negotiation. This is just me like, Dad, you just need to go do this. You know, it's, it's your teeth. Um, but then after taking your class, I was like, I need to start understanding, like, what is it about him resisting? Why is there this resistance, right? Uh, is it because he's afraid? Does, did he have a prior history of, you know, a fear of dentists? Does, is he afraid of COVID? Uh, like, what is it? Versus just trying to tell him, hey, Dad, you just need to go, right? Yeah, and, it's uncovering the interest, concerns, wants, and fears, and then you have yeah. something to problem solve. And it's uh, that's I, I think that's why I'm so excited to to talk to you <laughs> today because I, I I feel like you know just even outside of a business context, I've had so much more, I've, I've had so much improvement in just my communication interactions with people uh, after taking this class because it, I think you're absolutely I think you mentioned this is that. Every day, you negotiate every day with, yes, with people. Yes, you are. 
whether you realize it or not. Lots of problem-solving interactions with it. And it's great to teach your kids these skills because you won't have conflict. I don't have conflict with my kids because we always think of it as problem-solving. Let's share the information. Let's uh, figure this thing out. And then they can teach those skills to their friends as well. And the other thing I remember was uh, the project management exercise, sticking to the facts. That was just such robotics. A, yeah, that was that was such a powerful exercise. That's the one I wrote with my son. That's so. I thought that was you know I I was just talking to someone else about it um, the other day and they were just asking you know how how to basically get feedback from multiple people and how to negotiate with multiple parties uh, within an organization. I had to cite your this case. I was like this was so powerful because it it showed us firsthand the power of sticking to the facts of having, you know, people not get emotional about some belief, right? I believe that we should do this, or I think that we should do that. Like, what are the facts? And uh, keep people accountable to facts. Just help smooth out the negotiations so much quicker. What I wanted to get to was, you know, um, so glad you brought the kids uh, example because you recently published a, a research article on Gen Z, right? Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Yes. So oftentimes when I go into companies to work on negotiation challenges they have, uh, and by the way, most of their negotiation challenges are internal External negotiations are much easier. You have to get your own house in order, though, before you can negotiate externally. But when I'm in there, I often get questions about Gen Zs, and people are fearful about the new generation coming up, just as they are any new generation in the workplace. And I'd done some research on it, and I realized there was such a big interest, I decided to do a really large uh, research project on Gen Z to find out who are Gen Z, what do we need to think about, how might they negotiate differently? So how do they negotiate differently? They are actually very other-focused, believe it or not. So they're very accommodating. They want to mm. please the other side. And the unfortunate thing is that when you have two people accommodating, yes, they have a great relationship, but they don't push each other to find more value. And so they tend to set their aspirations at their bottom line. And so I try to instruct them to set an aspiration point, realistic, optimistic, because not only does it help you achieve more value, it helps the other side as well. All research shows that. And just because you're getting more for yourself doesn't mean you're hurting the other spot side. That's fixed pie thinking. That makes a lot of sense. And that, like, again, ties back to what you were talking about with the internet. I wonder if the increased transparency just makes it, you know, Gen Z a lot more aware that they could be exposed for being selfish or... Yes, they're very relationship-oriented, which I do like, uh, but they're very concerned about offending others. And I've noticed that trend because somebody will send me an email, I hope I didn't offend you when I said this or this, that. I can't even recall what possibly have been uh, offensive, but they are um, very nervous about saying things that they think may hurt the other side. Mm. How does that, I guess, taking that into the bigger world now, how would you recommend cross 
generational negotiation. Let's say for a Gen X or millennial with the Gen Z, because you know, I, I think in the workplace, that's something that realistic will, will be dealing with, right? Well, when I said Gen Zs tend to be accommodating, there's always exceptions to the rule because there's a lot of cultural aspects mm. to it. So depending on if you came from another country and now you're in the U.S., you may have a, a completely different view of negotiations and be a little bit more competitive, for example. So we really can't lump everybody to one category. So in any negotiation, it benefits by just getting to know the other side what their values are, how they think about things, because you have to change your own style depending on who you're negotiating with. I see. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we shouldn't stray from the techniques um, because the techniques are there for a reason, uh, regardless, because then I, I guess I just realized the, the fault of my question. Then we're, we're building in biases, right? We're building right. assumptions on, on who the other party is or should be and how they may or may not react. Now it's natural to go in with some assumptions and you would do a little research on who's this person by asking people from your LinkedIn network. But that's just a starting point. You always want to get to know the person for who they are mm-hmm. before the negotiation. That is part of the negotiation because you really, your first offer doesn't go on until midway through the negotiation. When you've checked your assumptions, you really understood what their interests are, not just take a guess and go with that. And that's what makes a good negotiator. That person is always interested in understanding the other person and actually trying to help the person get what he or she needs without look, overlooking your own interests. My next question is, you know, how should people be thinking about time? And what I mean by that is, you know, in an ideal world, you know, we have all the time to get to know the other party right? And to really hash out the negotiation. What if you're strapped for time? What's kind of, where, where's the balance in, in how to manage uh, time expectations? Well, typically people only make deals right when there's a deadline for them. <laughs> and as you experience in class, I can make the same negotiation 90 minutes or three hours and you still make it at that end when you feel a little bit of pressure. Now, uh, my colleague here at Haas has done amazing work on deadlines and negotiations. That's Don Moore. And he said deadlines can be very uh, useful because if you set a deadline, it affects both parties. So it does help people um, move towards something. However, if you have a time deadline and the other doesn't or doesn't know you have a time deadline, then they can stall. And what happens is you tend to then make too many concessions, which hurts you. So you have to decide how you're, whether using a deadline is going to actually be very helpful for you or uh, how you will manage the time for yourself. I see. That's really important. That's great. That's great. Well, <laughs> let, me, let me think about what, what are some, what's some advice that you can give during these, these times? I mean, we, it's not the first time that you've seen this happen, right? <laughs> where where it, we've had a recession back in 09. Uh, it seems like they were entering another one. What are some advice for our students and alumni um, negotiating in these times, if there's anything different, if at all? I think it's actually related to our last topic of timing. Okay. This is not a great time to ask for a raise. 
for example, <laughs> even if it's you're on track for that, well, everybody is struggling and there are some layoffs. So it would be better if you could just postpone that until things can stabilize. Now, in terms of getting a new job, if you're a valued resource, just negotiate the way you would have anyway. What is your value? Set your aspiration point, your resistance point, and try to build your BATNA. So I have looked at research that's been collected at the beginning of uh, this pandemic, and that's the advice that's come out. I see. That makes sense. I guess the only reason I was thinking of this question before was, you know, we, we have a lot of grads right now who are in the unfortunate position of not only having jobs offers rescinded, but, you know, having to go through a lot of rejection. I was curious if, if there's anything in your field of work that can help them get into the right mindset or get into a better mindset and their approach. I don't know if this is relevant. This comes up a lot with my undergraduates and that's just about how to influence someone in a positive way. And the best way to influence someone positively is to ask good questions, to get them to think differently. The worst way is just to keep talking over someone. And to, in order to influence someone, you have to understand their thinking, just as you said with your dad. Well, what is what are his concerns? What are his um, uh fears that he has so that you can work with that and understand if uh, that's not based on factual information or there's some other information that could be helpful for the person to understand. And then you can work through it. But if you never find out what someone is thinking or why they hold the position they do, then you, you really cannot influence the person. I think that message is really important because of everything that's going on in our world right now. Uh, that's I think that's, especially with the uh, how divisive, you know, and just not only our country, but the world is, uh, I feel like the the importance of, you know, asking questions and, and gaining understanding has become just ever so more important. I mean, that's, that's the one thing I'm realizing as I'm having some of these conversations, interviewing uh, some of our, you know, Black student alumni and... You know, I find myself sometimes just, you know, time and time again, um, they just appreciate that I'm asking, not even thinking about it. I'm just even asking questions uh, and exploring, even though I don't know to ask the right questions. Uh, it's just the act of doing something and nothing is, 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 um, is at least a step in the right direction. It's important. And so I think that's, where your message of really pushing yourself to gain understanding of their side is, is so important. Yeah, and their experiences, their perspective, because you don't want to judge the situation just from your perspective. There's always an interaction. That's why I said, that's why I study social interaction. It is an interaction. So we have to look at all the different uh, components. I know the simple answer of curing divisiveness is asking better questions and, and, uh, and becoming more understanding. But how do we even get people, and because you're a social psychologist, right? I wonder if you've thought about how we can start tackling some of the generational rift in our, in our country, like these issues. Well, I try to help um, 
the undergraduates. This is where I feel I can uh, have the most influence because at least for Gen Zs, they're very high achievement oriented. They really want to do well for the world, mm-hmm. but they have not been t- given skills for, well, how do I actually get my message across? Right. And so I talk quite a bit about social influence. And as I said, again, if you really want to influence someone, you have to know their perspective first and you really have to understand it. And then when you ask good questions, it's more relevant to them. They'll listen to what you have to say because anyone who feels listened to first then tends to be less defensive and more willing to hear what you have to say because you cannot persuade someone if you don't have their attention. Well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Holly, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's always uh, nice to talk with you and I love talking social psychology. (laughs) This was fun. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at haaspodcast.org. That's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears. Thank you.